God who's a father to the fatherless, don't we? We praise him for that. And uh, we see that what he expects of us, what he talks about pure and undefiled religion, James chapter 1, verse 27, is that we'd visit the orphan and the widow in their time of their distress. And so today we give a special voice to the orphan, today being Orphan Sunday, um, the fatherless, the motherless in our society. And you'll find some information about that in your worship program. There's a table, a kiosk that's out front, um, has some various books that are additional resources to go deeper than uh, what we'll talk about in just our time in the message this morning. And then also some other resources and ways that you can be involved in the life of defending the orphan speaking truth into the life of the orphan, providing for them in various different ways and very tangible ways. And so you can look at the little handouts in your sheet, gives you some examples, and then also please visit that table on your way out today. And if you're a guest with us today, I want to just give you a special welcome and hello. I believe that God's brought you here sovereignly by his divine plan so that he can have a divine encounter with you today. And uh, we also want to, to get to know you a little bit um, on a human-to-human level. And uh, would love to, if you would identify yourself, there's a little connection card in your worship program. If you don't mind filling that out, tell us what service you came to. And then also, um, how did you heard about us? That'd be a huge blessing to us. And then we use that card to be a blessing to someone else as well. So if you would turn that in out of the first-time guest kiosk, then we'll make a donation on behalf of that card that gets turned in towards a ministry that we support called Women at Risk International. It rescues people out of human trafficking, puts them in a safe house, tells them about the love of Jesus. So every card that gets turned in, we make a donation on behalf of that card to that ministry. And then we'll also give you a gift today, just our way of saying thanks and that we love you and that you're here today. Um, and we acknowledge that. So love you, each one of you that are here. Um, thank you so much for coming. We're going to take a little break from the Ten Commandments today, but we're going to continue in our series entitled Four. In our series four, we've been talking about how many times as followers of Jesus, um, we've become known in a very negative way in our culture for being hypocritical and judgmental and anti-gay and anti-certain political movements, and we're becoming famous for what we're against, this very negative image. And so we're asking the question, then what are we supposed to be for? What is God for, ultimately? We see Jesus Christ himself give us the commandment. Here's the greatest commandments. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And when you do that, the way that will be seen is that you'll love your neighbor as you love yourself. And we don't have to be commanded to love ourselves. We just do that. But that we'll love our neighbor the way that we'd want to be loved if we were in their circumstances and we care for them in that. And ultimately, that's for the glory of God. That's what all these messages have tied together is that it's for the glory of God. And we're going to continue today. We're going to pray before we open up God's word. Let's pray. Father, will you allow us to delight in you? Will you delight in our worship, our time in your word, our time as we sing songs, our time as we just even shake hands with one another, encourage one another, spur one another on, confront one another, and challenge one another, and carry each other's burdens, and do all the things you've called us to do as believers, and we come together at this time. What a strategic time. We get to see so many of our friends at once. Father, will you do something to equip and mobilize us as your army to make a difference against the kingdom of darkness? Will you please pour out your spirit on me and on us as we hear your word and make a difference in this city and in this world for your glory that we'd be for the things you're for? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you know my family and uh, my wife and I, Shanna, we have four little girls at our house, which creates a, a dynamic environment on a regular basis. And uh, we had quite the week this week. And some of, uh, some of you, like us, try to teach your kids the Bible. And you want them to learn verses, and our kids, our oldest one's five years old right now, their minds are just so amazing right now, the stuff that they can memorize. But like us, some of you realize it doesn't do you any good just to know information if that doesn't transform you, if that doesn't change you, and you don't actually apply this stuff. And so we get try to get them real practically on a regular basis to apply the scriptures. So we want them to memorize verses, we want them to actually do something with it. And we've got verses we teach them, some we emphasize more than others, like honor your mother and father. <laughs> No self-interest, right? And so we go through some of those things, and we try to make sure they actually do this stuff. And one of the things that we're trying to teach them right now is really a principle that you probably were taught, even if your parents weren't Christians. It's the golden rule. It's in the scriptures. You see it in the scriptures, but it's do unto others as you would have them do to you. You heard that one before? And we want our kids to not just know the verse, though. We want them to actually do this. And my wife, she's great at coming up with practical ways to teach our kids. And she was telling me this week when I came home, one day she came up with some new teaching skills. Okay, and what had happened is she walked into the kitchen, and our two oldest daughters were in there, our five-year-old Ella and our four-year-old Ava. And apparently what had happened is that Ella had just pinched Ava. <laughs> and so I was telling the first service, as cute as they are, they can act like little demons sometimes, Okay. And so you might see them around here and be like, oh, they're so nice. But at any rate, they're evil. But the thing is, is that Ella had just pinched Ava, and, and Shanna came walking into the kitchen, and, and she sees what's happened. She's been teaching this truth, right? And she says to Ava, Ava, pinch Ella. And Ella, or Ava's like, this is amazing. <laughs> what awesome parenting. And, and, and Ella's a little confused by this situation. And Shanna says, 
well, Ella, you must want Ava to pinch you because you know the Bible says, do unto others as you would have them do to you. So you must want Ava to pinch you. So Ava, why don't you go ahead and pinch Ella? (laughs) Great teaching skills, aren't they? A few minutes later, they're up in their bedroom and they're playing with each other and Shannon's out in the hallway and she heard, heard them playing with their dolls in there. Ella was being really mean to a doll that Ava really likes. She got this Jessie doll from Toy Story, and she just loves a Jessie doll. Ava, Ella loves her, her Buzz doll. And so she, Ella was, I don't know if she was taking Buzz and beating the snot out of Jessie or, or what was happening there, but she was being mean to the Jessie doll. And so Shanna comes walking in, and she says, Ava, go be mean to the Buzz doll. That's like awesome for Ava, right? And, and Ella's thinking, what in the world's going on here? And Shanna says, well, Ella, you know that the Bible says... Do unto others as you want them to do to you. So you must want Ella or Ava to be mean to your doll because you've been being mean to her doll. To which Ella kind of contemplates this for a couple moments and then says back, well, Mom, the Bible also says don't exchange evil for evil. <laughs> My wife told me this story and she was like, oh, like, why does she do this to me? Nothing's happened here. But see, Ella sensed there's something wrong with this circumstance. You're not supposed to, not supposed to do mean stuff to me. Like, maybe I do mean stuff to other people. This, this is injustice. This isn't right. This is supposed to happen to me. It's wrong. We just know when things are wrong, don't we? Even when there are minor violations or something that happens to us, we know that things just aren't right sometimes. Like today after church, if you go to buy some groceries and you go buy some milk and some butter at Walmart and you're standing in line and you're in the express line, right? And it's 20 items or less. And you see the guy in front of you, he's got like 30 items. That's wrong. Isn't it wrong? You might not say it, but you feel wronged in that situation. Some first service, you can stand in line at the fair, and there's one guy in front of you. Ever had this happen to you? One person's in front of you, and you think you're next. You're going to get your fried Twinkie like you're all excited. That's not good for you, by the way. You're going to get your fried Twinkie, and then his 10 relatives come walking up. Hey, Vern, what's going on? You know, they're standing there, t- and you're like, I just got caught by 11 people. I mean, I'm supposed to be next. It's wrong. Or maybe you're watching a game like my good buddy Jason yesterday and feels like he got robbed and this guy made a catch at the end of the game, would have given him a chance to tie the game. But it wasn't a catch. And everybody else in the world knows that it wasn't a catch. I'm above this. But, but here's the thing. <laughs> he feels like it was wrong. It was injustice that took place in that moment, right? And then his friend would then use the pulpit to give him a hard time about it. <laughs> it's injustice. Well, there's injustices that we see all the time. Sometimes minor injustices, maybe you get shortchanged, you realize in a deal, what happened here? I lost a couple bucks or whatever thing. We know when things are wrong. Somebody exchanges evil for evil. Maybe what you did was wrong, but you know you're not supposed to be wrong done back to you. Or how about when it gets worse, when somebody exchanges evil for good? Or what about when it's even worse than that? You're just an innocent party and something bad happens to you. There's injustice in this world. This world is filled with injustice and it just keeps escalating. Some of you, your parents were divorced. And you didn't have anything to do with it, but you got caught in the middle, right? That's how this world is. It's unjust. That's injustice. And you get caught having conversations, adult conversations between two adults as a child. It's never supposed to be. It's injustice. Or you have worse situations where you have children, they get abused. And they're totally innocent. And it's oftentimes by someone that they trust and they love. 30 to 40% of young girls will be sexually abused. It's injustice. And not just for young children, but children that haven't been born yet. 130,000 children will be killed today. And it won't be on the news. And the reason why is because in most places it's legal. In some places it's encouraged. It's called abortion. It's injustice. It's just not right. And, And that doesn't even mention racism. You don't think there's still racism? Talk to someone of another race. And homelessness and extreme poverty and hunger. More people will die of lack of sanitation and hunger and have died in the last 50 years than all the wars combined in the 20th century. And people will continue to die of this. Thousands of people every day die because they don't have food. It's injustice. And today we give a voice to the orphan. And we speak on behalf of the orphan and God speaks on behalf of. Try imagining being a two-year-old little kid and you don't have a mom or dad, but then there's other little kids and they've got moms and dads. Tell them why that's right. Because they know it's not right. It's injustice. But the good news is, and we'll talk about today, is that God is for justice. That he is a just God and that he's for justice. Well, don't you ask yourself the question, then why doesn't he fix all this stuff? What about the diseases? What about the hunger? What about the children? Why doesn't he just fix all this stuff? The good news is there's coming a day when he will. He's preparing a place for us where there's no injustice, where there's no one that's fatherless, where there's no one that goes hungry, there's no diseases, and there's none of that stuff. There's, there's coming a day when that will happen, but it's not today. 
at least not as far as we know, because we're still here. And the injustice is still happening, so what? What's the answer? And we cry out to God and we ask him, just fix all this stuff. And he has an answer for us and there's a plan for it. Do you know the answer and the plan? Are you ready? It's you. And it's me. As followers of Jesus Christ. That we would bring justice in the midst of the injustice and ultimately demonstrate the gospel to a lost world. See, God is for justice. The question is, are we? That's what we're going to talk about today. If you have your Bibles in Isaiah chapter 1, I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to start reading in verse 10. I'll read through verse 17. If you don't have a copy of the scripture, uh, we give them out for free and we'd love for you to have them. We put verses that I read up on the screen, uh, but we will have verses that sometimes you want to look at or God starts speaking to your heart and you want to see if what what I'm saying really true. And so you got to get the context and start reading through it. Bring your own copy of the scripture. It's a great opportunity for you to get into the word. And what I say is just supposed to be a stimulus to you anyways. Today we're taking a break from the Ten Commandments. We've been in Exodus, looking at the, uh, the book of Exodus and this covenant relationship that God starts with his people. And we'll be back to that next week. But today we're going to look at the prophet Isaiah. And I say the prophet Isaiah, and you may wonder, what is a prophet? And a prophet's one who speaks boldly, not only of the truth of God, but into the culture that he's in. Oftentimes we think of prophets as if they only talk about the future, but that's not always the case. In fact, many prophets, they speak right into the culture that are involved, and that's what Isaiah does here. He paints a picture of a holy and majestic God that will bring redemption. He paints a picture of what the Savior, Jesus Christ, will be like, but he also speaks right into the culture that he's dealing with at this time. And he diagnoses the problem they have, and he gives a prescription for what they're supposed to do about the problem, and he tells them what will happen if they don't. Warren Wearsby does a great job describing this. He uses the analogy of a doctor. He says, a prophet's like a a good doctor. They'll diagnose a disease. Then they'll write a prescription. And they'll tell you what'll happen if you don't follow up with with the prescription. If you don't actually do what you're told to do after the surgery, after the things that take place, the doctor does. And that's what a prophet does. And what this prophet Isaiah is doing here is he's speaking a vision that God's given him. And it's a vision about the worship of his people. Now, these are the same people that he brought out of Egypt, out of slavery, and brought into freedom. These are the same people he has a covenant relationship with that he starts with them at Mount Sinai that we've been talking about. He's been given, they've been given these commandments. He says, here's how you live in freedom. But here's the problem for these people. They believe the promises of the culture over the promises of God. But they continue to worship God. And God tells them what he thinks of their worship. Through the prophet Isaiah, he says this. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the law of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah has already been destroyed. This is not actually to Sodom and Gomorrah. What he's doing here is he's comparing these people to the wickedness that was in the hearts of the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. But if you look at them outwardly, They look amazing. Look at their worship. They do all the right stuff. But this is what God thinks of it. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, of the fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who's asked this of you? This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies. Your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of burdening them, bearing them. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my eyes from you. And your prayers, even if you offer many, I will not listen to them. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. And here God, through the prophet Isaiah, goes line by line through their worship. And he talks about their worship. And they're doing everything right. They've got all the accurate worship. They've got all the sacrifices. They've got all the stuff. They bring it with sincerity. But there's something that's missing. And what's missing is justice. He says, stop doing wrong. Learn to do what's right. Seek justice. Here's what you're missing in your worship. Because justice is pleasing worship. To get that justice is pleasing worship. And every person, everywhere, regardless of your culture, regardless of your background, regardless of your religion, you know that God desires worship. 
to worship false gods, all kinds of stuff that's out there. You go to different cultures. You see everybody knows that God wants sacrifice. He wants sincerity. He wants you to come before him. He sometimes sing songs. And uh, The first service I was telling them about how my wife and I have been to different places, different cultures. And we went one place, and I remember scratching my head at the edge of this mountain and seeing there's some lettuce sitting at the edge of the mountain, and there's some carrots there. And it come from the produce section of the grocery store. It was an offering to a false god. And I looked at it and thought, that's kind of ridiculous, but they understood that God wants worship. We all know that God wants worship. And here in American culture, in Western world, what we do is we, we gather together in assemblies and we sing songs and we pray prayers and we've got different liturgies based on our backgrounds, Episcopal and Baptist and non-denominational and Lutheran. It doesn't matter. We all come and we've got different things that we do that we think are pleasing to God. Words that we say, prayers that we say, creeds that get read, all kinds of stuff because we believe that our worship then is pleasing to God. But he tells these people here, your worship, I hate it. Can you imagine being told that? Like, like try and imagine with me for a moment. Imagine somebody that you really love. And it could be different people depending on your life and situation. It could be your spouse. It could be kids. It could be a parent or whoever it is. Just imagine the person you love the most in your life. And there's a list of like 10. Just pick one of those people, okay? The, the person that you love the most. And imagine trying to take something to them and, and give it to them to demonstrate your love. Like for me, I imagine my wife. I love my wife. We're best friends. Uh, we, we get along really well. And, and I would want to demonstrate my love to her. And so let's just say for the sake of this illustration, imagine with me, hypothetically, of course, that she loves expensive jewelry. <laughs> just hypothetical, of course. Right, baby? Just hypothetical. <clears throat> Got it. Still cover my bases. Anyway, let's imagine that she loves expensive jewelry. And I want to present some expensive jewelry to her. And so uh, I would just listen to her and try and subtly pick up what are the things that you like? like? What are the jewels, the gems, the different things that you like? And then I'd go out and I'd study. How do you know these gems, the best ones? How can you get the best ones, the best deal? And, and how would you uh, find this? And, and say I wanted to buy her a bracelet. And so I start going to different stores and seeing what different kinds of bracelets they have. And so I'd look to see which bracelet I think that she would be most pleased with based on her style, the things that she says that she likes, and just kind of watching her and observing her, learning about her. And then as I learn about her, then I'm also spending time on this whole deal, and I'm starting to save up some money, and so I do maybe some extra work on the side. Or don't spend some money on lunch one week so I can put some money, just kind of sacrificing financially and putting you know, some uh, time off to the side and, and trying to be real sincere about this, want to get exactly the right thing. And, and finally, I got enough money saved up, and I go to the store, and I start negotiating. I get the best bracelet I can get for the money that I have, and now I'm excited, right? Because I'm going to present it to her, and we're going to go out to a meal, and it's going to be awesome. It's going to make up for, like, dumb stuff that I've said in the past or things that, you know, when I pretended like she didn't like expensive jewelry in a sermon or <laughs> whatever it was, and I'm going to be so excited about this, and I've got this little velvety box that they give me, and we're sitting at a meal, and I slide it across the table. I'm just waiting for her to open it up and tell me, you never have to buy me anything again. It's so wonderful. That's not going to happen. But anyway, uh, Wayne is sliding across the table. Can you imagine she opens up the box and she looks at the bracelet? And I've spent so much time on this. I've worked so hard for this and sincere on this whole deal. And, and she looks at it. And she throws it down and looks at me and says, there's nothing I hate more than this bracelet. And she walks away from the table. Can you imagine how these people felt? And they bring their sacrifices to God. And they know that he wants worship. And they come to him and he hates their worship. Verse 13 and 14 in this passage, he says specifically, my soul, the very essence of my being, it hates your worship. Stop bringing me meaningless offerings. They're empty offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths and convocations, I cannot bear your evil assemblies, your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. My soul hates your worship. And he's gone line by line, and you see their worship. It's biblical worship. It's accurate worship. But he says how much is detestable to him. He compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 10. In verse 11, he says, I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. In verse 13, he says, stop, bring it. It's meaningless. Your incense, that would be an expensive offering. And you'd burn it to God because it would cover the smell of all the nasty animals you just killed. And it's supposed to be a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. But he says here, it's detestable. He says, I can't bear. And it's not because these were pagan festivals, the new moon festivals or the Sabbaths. These are things God commanded them to do. He says, I can't bear them, your evil assemblies. He says, my soul hates them. They're a burden to me. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I'll hide my face from you. 
That's the opposite of Numbers chapter 6 where Aaron, the priest, comes out and he says over the people, may God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you his peace. And here, God says, I turn my face from you. And your prayers, even though your prayers are many, I don't listen to your prayers because I hate your worship. Why? Why does he so hate their worship? Because when you look here, there's sincerity in worship. And so if all God wanted was emotion or if all God wanted was sincerity, then it would be there, right? Because you don't go through all this hassle to actually bring the bulls and the goats. That's expensive and the incense and to travel, to come to the place where you can have the new moon festivals where you can have at appointed times on appointed days. It wasn't they were coming on the wrong day. It's accurate. And so there's sacrifice and there's accuracy. They're doing exactly what God told them to do and there's sincerity. And so what's the problem here? It's not enough to just be emotional about what happens in the moment. It's not enough to be accurate towards the, just in, in the accuracy of the scriptures. It's not enough just to give sacrifice. It's not enough to tithe. It's not enough to give above the tithe. It's not enough to do that because what we're doing when we oftentimes do those things is we're divorcing worship from the rest of our lives. See, worship is not a part of our lives. Worship is our lives. Worship is not just a part of something we do. Worship is who we are. We're always worshiping something. We're all always worshiping something. But it's natural for us to think that worship's just something you do. You come on a day, like on a Sunday, and you, you sing songs, and you're sincere about it, and you really mean it at the time. And maybe it was a sacrifice of your time. Maybe it was a sacrifice of your money. And the words, and the moment, you, you meant them. But when your life is divorced from them, God says, I hate your worship. But it's so natural for us to do that. You remember in John chapter 4? It's the central passage in the New Testament on worship. In John chapter 4, if you read your Bibles, a lot of times there'll be subtitles there. It's called The Woman at the Well or The Samaritan Woman. And in the culture, men didn't speak to women at all, not in public. And Jews didn't speak to Samaritans. And Jesus, with the gospel power, blows through all those cultural expectations. And he's sitting at this well. And some of his buddies have run off to get some food. And, And he's sitting there at this well. And up this hill comes this woman. She's coming in the middle of the day for a reason. And the reason why she's coming in the middle of the day is because she has a reputation. She doesn't have friends to come with her. You didn't come at this time of the day to this well. And so she comes, and you can imagine what she looks like. Life has been hard on her. If you've met people before, you can just kind of tell. You see it on their face. They wear how life has been hard on them. And this woman, she comes to this well. And here's Jesus, a man, a Jewish man. And he says, will you give me a drink? She gets him a drink of water, and in their conversation, he says, you know, I offer living water. I give water so that if you take a drink of this water, you never thirst again. You don't think a woman like that wants that kind of water? How humiliating to come at this time of day with no friends to get this water. And she's told that she can have water, but she'll never have to come to the well again. She says, I want some of that water. How do I have that water? And Jesus says to her, why don't you go get your husband? Come back, and we'll talk about it. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus says, that's right, you don't have a husband. And you've been married five times, you've had five husbands, and the guy you're with right now, he's not your husband, you're shacking up with somebody. Can you imagine how difficult that would be if you were that woman? And Jesus, he puts his finger right in the the sore spot of her heart. You know what she does then? She starts a conversation about worship. So should we use hymns or choruses? Isn't that kind of an odd transition at that point? Like, are we supposed to worship on this mountain where the Samaritans worship? Are we supposed to worship on that mountain where the Jews worship? Is exactly what she says. And Jesus basically says to her, listen, your problem is you don't know who you worship. There's coming a time, it's now come, where it doesn't matter where you're going to worship. True worshipers, the ones that God seeks, they will worship in spirit and truth. And then he reveals himself as the Messiah, the living water. And she goes back and you can read the rest of the story. It's a glorious end. But isn't it interesting how when God wants to talk about her life, then she transitions. Let's talk about, let's talk about worship. We divorce worship from our life. I don't want to talk about my life. I don't want to talk about the, the stuff that's going on there. And what God's concerned with is our hearts and he wants our lives because our lives are our worship. And when our lives lack justice, it lacks the pleasing aroma that he's looking for from our lives. But see, it's not just for people that are outwardly sinful, that it's so obvious that there's sin. This guy, she's got five husbands, she's divorced, and she's shacking up with some other guy. That's obvious. But the most moral people in the day, he says the same thing to them, the Pharisees, more moral than anybody that will be at this church today. And he says to them, and Matthew, uh, the prophet Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. You praise me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And that's the problem. You do all the right stuff and you say all the right words. But your hearts 
they're not there. Not that you're not sincere, not that you don't mean it, because you give sacrifice and you do it accurately. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus says to that same group of people, woe to you, that's condemnation. Woe to you, because they think they're right with God because of the things they're doing. He says, woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth. They heard last week's message. <laughs> you give God a tenth of your mint and rue and all of the other kinds of garden herbs. Those are the smallest little things in the garden. But you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have done the former without neglecting the latter. You see, it's not wrong to tithe. In fact, I want you to do that. It's commanded in the scriptures. However, it's a meaningless offering to me if your heart's not there. And your heart's not there, and I see it in your life, and your life lacks justice. And so what people were doing in Isaiah's day is they were believing the promises of the culture, and they were feeding on the promises of the culture. And then they would come in, and they would praise God, and somehow they would think that it like worked itself out. Like It's kind of like having the mentality of, I'm going to do my thing on Friday and Saturday, but I feel really guilty about that, so I'm going to go to church on Sunday. It kind of works that, the deal out, like, right? You live like hell, but then you give an offering to heaven, and so then everything's cool. And God says, I hate that. To pretend like because you show up at a place or to pretend like because you go through a mode, to pretend like that everything's okay with us because you say some right things or you offer some prayers or you spend a little time doing this thing or maybe you read your Bible so nothing bad happens to you. I don't work like that. I can't be mocked. I can't be manipulated. I hate your worship because of your sin. See, God's just and he can't have injustice in his presence and his injustice is we do injustice continually when we sin against a God that we claim that we follow. And he says, there's a problem here. And the problem is you're dirty. And he says it in the passage, and he says, you've got blood on your hands. You lift your hands to me, whether it's in song, whether it's in prayer. But what I see is the hands of a murderer, blood-stained hands. And what do you do when you're dirty? What happens when you're dirty? A real question. What do you do? You wash. You, you cleanse yourself, right? Like, think about the time when you've been the dirtiest in your life. Can you think of that? Think about whether you worked on a car or you were baking something or you're working in the garden or you're playing a sport. Think about that time when you've been so dirty. I played football with some guys here from Southbridge before. I've seen us get dirty. We were out there, a bunch of middle-aged dudes that think they're playing in the Super Bowl, but it's not good, okay? And we all hurt afterwards. And, but in the moment, you forget that the game doesn't matter. And, and so you do way more stuff than you probably should do to your body, especially when you've been sitting watching football all day up until that point. But anyway, I remember one time this pass was coming. We were playing out of this church. And their field, it was totally wet. It was a mess. It was raining outside. And this ball's coming, and I dove for it. <laughs> what am I thinking? Like, I don't care about this game. But I dove, and I landed. In th- I didn't catch the ball, by the way, either. So there's no, like, highlight film of this deal. It was bad news. And uh, it wasn't because I wasn't open. But anyway. But I land in this mud puddle. I don't catch the ball. I get up, and then I'm sopping wet. I got, like, nastiness just running through underneath all my clothes. And you know what? After that game, I didn't go home. And give my wife a big hug and a kiss and pretend like everything was okay. I didn't climb into bed that night, pretend like everything was good, like I wasn't dirty. I didn't just go to the living room and stand there and go, hey, God, I'm dirty. (laughs) And you know, and you're sovereign. So if you want me to be clean, please cleanse me. You know what I did? I went and I scrubbed myself in the shower. I'm shampoo, soap, all that stuff. When I was done, I was so dirty, I used a white towel to dry off. It was brown when I was done. (laughs) I was still nasty after my shower. You see, there's something you have to do to be clean with God. See, he's the one that cleanses us, right? But it says here in verse 16, wash and make yourselves clean. There's something you do. You know what this is a picture of? It's a picture of repentance. I met with the 65 guys on Tuesday night from Southbridge, and someone got real candid about sin. You know what? If you just get honest about your sin and acknowledge that there's sin in your life, it's like going home and standing in the living room going, I'm dirty. Okay, God, if you want to do something about it, feel free. And there's a passivity there. See, God is the one that cleanses us, but there is a responsibility on us, and the responsibility is repentance. You know what repentance is? It's stop doing what you're doing. Don't keep going out and playing in the mud. And you turn, and you do something else. And you turn away from the promises of the culture because the culture's been feeding you stuff, the culture's been giving you stuff, the culture's been promising you things, and it doesn't fulfill its promises, but you keep feeding on them. So stop doing that and you turn to the living God. This text here, it says not only to stop doing wrong, but in verse 17 it says learn to do what's right, seek justice. So it's not just about stopping. One of the things I've learned over the past few years, you don't just say cut it out. Like you've been eating junk food, stop eating junk food. Go eat good food. That's the key. Go eat the good food. I was telling the men on Tuesday night, 
something happened at our house. I, I went home, my wife, she had made a meal, it was like a quick dinner that night, but she had whipped up and spent a bunch of time making these mashed potatoes, but she had made for the kids, his kids like tater tots, she had made them tater tots. A lot of times we eat the same stuff, but I saw the tater tots, and I wanted the tater tots, but I didn't know if I was supposed to say anything or not, because my wife had spent all this time making these fresh potatoes, and tater tots, they're like nasty little fried up stuff, and I walked up, and I didn't say it in front of the kids, but I, I leaned in, I said, honey, I, I really want the tater tots. Like, I just wanted them so much, I wanted to express it to her. And you know what she said to me? We really need to train your palate, Scott. <laughs> See, I wanted the fake stuff, the nasty stuff. And so many times that's what we do is we develop and we've got this hunger in our soul and we go after these promises that are in our culture and we get full from that, don't we? I mean, it fills us up for Maybe we feel bad afterwards, like eating a bunch of candy bars or eating some nasty food and you feel bad after, but in the moment it's good. You know what the scripture tells us? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 34, 8. You, you go to the gospel, and the gospel is what cleanses. The gospel is what transforms. The gospel is what fills our soul. But so many times there's these false promises that our enemy has there for us. It's like feasting on junk food. And over a long period of time, it gets worse and worse and worse. But we develop a taste for those things. And says, stop doing that. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do what's right. One man that night on Tuesday night was very candid. He said it was okay for me to share this with you. And he was talking about his own life, struggles with sexual sin. And he said he's discovered that the antidote for sexual sin is service. He said, rather than using someone for your own consumption, they're image bearers of God. That's not what they were made for. So everybody, male, female, broken, uh, looks all clean on the outside, looks all warm, whatever the deal is, everybody's an image bearer of God. And so they weren't made for your consumption. And rather than using someone for his consumption, he says he serves those people. It's a picture of the gospel. Mark chapter 10, verse 43 through 45, Jesus Christ himself says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. It's a demonstration of loving God and loving others for the glory of God. It's a picture of the gospel. And when we seek justice, which is what we're told here in verse 17, learn to do right, seek justice. It's seeking what's right. When we seek justice, we're giving a picture of the gospel because it's a characteristic of God. Moses says in Deuteronomy that God is just. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, right before the beautiful chapter 33, where Moses sees the glory of God, he says, he's the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just, a faithful God who does not do wrong. He's upright and just. Twice in one verse, he's just God. You read through the prophets, you know what a picture of obedience was for the people in the Old Testament? It wasn't that they went through all the Ten Commandments and didn't break any of those commandments. It's what they did justice because God is for justice. These are the people that were given the Ten Commandments. These are the people that were called out of slavery. These are the people, though, that when they put something else on the throne of their life and it drives their life, it drives them away from justice. They lie and they deceive themselves. They steal and they murder. They hate. They're angry. They're adulterous. It all drives them away from justice. And you read the prophet Amos, you read the prophet Hosea, you read the prophet Micah, and they all say, what does God require of you? It's justice. Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that famous verse. He has showed you, oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. In Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 16, to seek justice is to know God. He defended the cause of the poor and the needy, and so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? To do justice, is that not what it is to actually know me? You want to know God? Seek justice. Because justice is a picture of the gospel because it's at the cross where you see ultimate justice. That's why salvation by theologians is referred to as our justification. You see, God, because he's just, had an incredible problem with you. Do you know what his problem with you was? It's that he loved you so much. And his love for you seemed to be a violation of his own character. Because he is holy and he is righteous and he is just and we are sinful. All of us are sinful. Not just we make a mistake, it's not just our activities, it's at our core we're dirty and we need to be cleansed. And so you know what he did at the cross? He sent his son Jesus who was fully God. That's why he's able to pay a debt that we owed that we couldn't pay. He sent his son Jesus Christ it's where mercy and justice come together is at the point of the cross. It's a picture of justice. When Jesus Christ dies on the cross, because on the cross he takes upon the full wrath of an angry God who hates sin, and he takes it for us so that we can then be justified before God. 
and then we experience God's justice. Have you experienced God's justice in your life? Do you know what it is to embrace the cross? Not do you believe in Jesus, but do you know the gospel? The gospel saves sinners. The gospel justifies us. But not only does the gospel justify us, it transforms his followers. The gospel doesn't just justify us. It doesn't just save sinners, and it does that, and it would be enough if it just did that. But the gospel is so amazing that it's a continual part of our development as his followers. The gospel not only saves us, the gospel transforms us. And one of the transforming works of the gospel is that we realize that God's justice, which we love so much at the point of the cross, is not just for us. God's justice is not just for us. And you see that in Isaiah chapter 1. He says to seek justice, but then he talks about how to do it. And he doesn't talk about you. You see, we all love God's justice. And we all love that, that God is faithful and just. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, it's because of his faithfulness and his justice that if we get honest about our sin, that he does what? He cleanses. He cleanses each one of us. And so we cling to the cross and we love that. But it's not just for us. See, if we're for that, then we're for that in the lives of others. In Isaiah chapter 1, what he says is this. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Here's three people groups. That justice is not just for you, it's for these people. And so you demonstrate in the lives of these people. And when you do that, you're giving a picture of the gospel. Remember Jesus Christ when he starts his ministry? In Luke chapter 4, he preaches a message to his hometown synagogue, his home church. And it doesn't go well. <laughs> I remember the first message I preached at a church. I had 14 pages of handwritten notes. <laughs> I wore a green suit. Didn't go well. It didn't go well for Jesus for different reasons, because they wanted to kill him. When he was, people said nice stuff to me, even though the sermon was terrible. <laughs> so, at any rate, uh, Jesus, he preaches a message. They want to kill him afterwards, because they don't like the message he's preaching. You know what the message he's preached was? Luke chapter 4, verse 18, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to release the oppressed. See, when you encourage the oppressed, you know what you're doing? You're demonstrating the gospel. How do you encourage the oppressed? Well, let me tell you, it's very simple. It's a lesson you probably learned when you were a child. You do to them what you would want done to you if you were in their circumstances. So you try and put yourself in the place of the oppressed. Who are the oppressed? Well, 30 to 40% of young girls will be sexually abused by people that they trust and love. That's an oppressed person. 40 million people will die of AIDS this year. Those are oppressed people, oppressed by disease. There are people of different races. You don't think racism is still relevant. Ask someone of another race. They're oppressed. What would you want done to you if you were in their circumstances? There are millions and millions of oppressed people throughout our world. Human trafficking is a $58 billion business. People are being bought and sold like merchandise. That's oppression. They're in slavery, literally in bondage. And Jesus says, I came to release the oppressed. I set the captives free came to preach good news to the poor. So what do we do? Well, I want to invite you to a movie that we're going to show. I'll give you some tangible ideas. It's called Project 58. It's going to be on Tuesday night. Not this coming Tuesday, but the next Tuesday, November 15th. It's going to be here at this movie theater. Tickets are free, but once we're out of tickets, you can't get a ticket. So we've got as much space as in, in this theater. And if you want one, you can go to our website and get one after the service today or go out to the connection table and ask information if you don't have internet access. And uh, we'll make sure we get you a ticket. But in Project 58, what they talk about is the Isaiah 58 fast. And what you end up seeing in this movie is a bunch of people, normal people like us, decide to do tangible things really to seek justice, in many cases to release the oppressed. And I was talking to a member of our church who's responsible for putting all this together. And I haven't seen the movie yet, but I said, tell me some of the things that happened in the movie. And he told me about this one guy who's a retired police officer who partnered up with International Justice Ministries to try and rescue people out of human trafficking. And so he's got this, obviously, special training. He's, he's been in the military. He's been in a police department. He's been in gun battles before. He, he's been in fist fights before, all this kind of stuff. And he says there's nothing more difficult than what he's doing right now. What he's doing right now is he decided to forget his retirement and sitting on the beach and watching the waves come up because he spent all his time serving his community and did all that stuff. But he believes that God still had a purpose for his life. So he's forgotten all that stuff, and he's gone to India trying to rescue young girls out of these brothels. And he talks about what happens in India is there's extreme poverty there. And so the traffickers, what they do is they go, they don't go like try and kidnap these kids. They walk right up to the door of the house, knock on the door, the parents come out, and they say, you got a little girl in there, we'll buy her from you, and we're going to marry her off somewhere, and when we get money from that, we'll send some more money. So here's some money to buy her right now, and we'll send you some more money later. And you think to yourself, who could ever sell their kid? Now, there's extreme poverty 
Try and put yourself in a mindset where if she stays with me, she's going to die anyways because we can't even feed her. And so they got money in their hand, and they know in the back of their mind this is wrong, but they sell her to the traffickers. And then she gets trafficked around from city to city and place to place, used and abused, sometimes as young as six years old. And this police officer says, you go into these places, and it's dark, and there's an evil presence. I said, but there's all kinds of men willing to purchase these young girls. And so he goes in, and he takes these young girls, and he rescues them out of there. He's undercover. Can you imagine what it looks like to look into that man's face who treats you different than all those other men that you've ever seen before and rescues out of that and releases the captives? That girl, if you were that girl, she's looking into the face of Jesus. He's demonstrating the gospel to this girl. And so what do you do? Because some of us aren't trained militarily. We haven't had all that equipping. See, the guy talks about it in his life. It's amazing. It's such a difficult thing, but it's amazing to know that God's been preparing me all this time to fulfill this purpose that he has for me. Incredibly hard. It's the hardest thing he's ever done. But to know he's doing what God's called him to do, which is demonstrating the gospel in a very tangible way. But many of us, we can't do that, right? So what do you do? Well, all the money that's happening here in the sex slavery, you know what's fed by? Pornography. You involved in that? Stop. Learn to do right. Seek God, taste and see that he's good. That's one step. Repent. Another one. What about those people that are in extreme poverty in India that they would even consider selling their child? Do you have something you can give? Try and help them out of that situation? You see, Project 58 will challenge us that we can actually end extreme poverty in our world in this generation. Just Christians. But we've got to be serious about this. Are you for justice? to encourage the oppressed, to do for them what you'd want done for you if you were in their situation. But it's not just the oppressed. He goes on and he lists again, uh, defend the cause of the orphan, the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Oftentimes in scripture you see the widow and the orphan put together. And the reason why you see them together so often is because they're needy and they can never repay. They're the people that if you help them, you're not going to get anything back. That's why when you see in the New Testament where Jesus is talking about a banquet, you go and you invite all your friends, and the reason why you invite your friends is so that they'll invite you to their banquet. And he says, that's nothing. He says, but you go invite the poor, you go invite the homeless, you go invite those people, so that then your reward will be in heaven. That's why in James chapter 1 and verse 27, he says, there's pure and undefiled religion is this, that you visit, that you care for the widow and the orphan. You keep yourself from those other promises that are out there and you come to me and you want a pleasing offering to me. You want to worship me the way that I desire to be worshipped. Or you can come up with your own method. You can come up with your own way and you can think that it's okay because you feel really good about it and there's a sacrifice in it and you sing the right words and they're biblical. But if your life isn't there, I hate it. You want pure and undefiled religion for me? Then I want your life. Is your life for what I'm for? And he's for the cause of those that are fatherless. It's a picture of the gospel. We've all been fatherless without hope and without God. That's without a spiritual father. He's rescued us, adopted us into his family. He adopts us in. We become his child. He does all the work to come after us, to come get us, and we don't even know he exists. And then we embrace Jesus, and he transforms our lives. I was talking with a guy that's at our church this week. His name's Floyd Green, Floyd Diana. They've adopted four children from overseas. They have two biological children and four children that they've adopted we're talking about the adoption process. No one else would be speaking on this. I was just asking questions. What was it like? And really our conversation ended up being, it basically parallels the gospel exactly. I'm talking about defending the cause of the, the fatherless. And he talked about what it was like when they found out about these children that were overseas that they were going to go adopt. And those children didn't even know that they existed. To the children, from their perspective, Floyd and Diana were totally invisible. But they're preparing a place for these children to come back to their home. They're doing a bunch of work to try and be able to get to these children. They're going to give sacrifice and they're going to pay money and they're going to give time and they're going to go through hoops where they get examined and all these types of things so that they can have this child become their child. And they go to this child and they visit the child and they love on the child and they hug on the child and they demonstrate love in every way that they can for the child. But he said in his situation, it was unique that they had to stand before this judge and the judge asked the child a question, do you want to be a child of Floyd and Diana Green? And at that point, the child can say no. Regardless of everything that the, they've done, the child can say no and turn and walk out and it's over. But if the child says yes, then what happens is they become a part of the Green family. They take on a new identity and in their case, they leave a country. They're no longer citizens there. They're aliens in that place and they go to another country, to a place that's been prepared for them, a place where there's love and there's care and there's comfort, a place where they try to protect and provide and give justice, do what's right. 
and he and Floyd said it was so amazing at the specific orphanage that they were at that they actually required them to leave their orphanage clothes there and to buy them new clothes. What a picture of the gospel. The old things pass away, that new things come. You take off the old clothes, you put on the new clothes. No more grave clothes because you're new, you're different. But it's not just for us, see? Justice doesn't just happen for us, it's for others. It's for the orphan, it's for the fatherless. What a picture of the gospel. I was reading an article this week by a guy named Russell Moore. And Russell has adopted some children. He was talking about his adoption process. And the article, he talks about the worst sound he's ever heard in his life. And he talks about when he goes to this orphanage in the former Soviet Union. And uh, he goes there with his wife. And they've done all the paperwork and all these things. And in their situation, you had to go twice. And their first visit, they were going to meet these two boys that were one year old. And they wanted to hold these boys, love on these boys. And he talks about the first visit. They're in this orphanage. And they're standing in the hallway he said, the worst part wasn't the filth, and it was filthy. It wasn't the smell. And he said, the smell would make you want to vomit. The environment would make you want to weep. He said, but it was the sound. And the sound was silence. There was no noise. And he said, I'm standing in a building full of children, and it's totally silent. He said, if you listened really closely, you could hear children rocking themselves in their cribs, and the slats on their crib would bump up against the wall but there's no noise. And he said something to his wife, why is it so quiet? And they both were comparing that to the nursery back at home at their church where kids are crying, kids are laughing, kids are cry, you know, doing all kinds of good cries and squeals and all kinds of stuff. But here it's totally silent. Do you know why it's silent? It's silent because infants and toddlers learn that when they cry out for food and they cry out for love and they cry out for comfort and no one responds after a while, they stop crying. And so they're in this orphanage where, where no one's caring for, no one's picking them up, no one's holding them. When they cry out for food, no one's coming. And so they're all being silent. And so they walk down this hallway and into the room where their two boys are at, and they're being totally silent. They've got these expressions, though. One, a uh, little Sergey is at the edge of the crib, and he, he's smiling. He's kind of bouncing up and down. They renamed him Timothy. And then there's Maxim. He said Maxim stood there kind of like a czar. He's just like a royal looking at him. And, and, and he's standing. They renamed him Benjamin now. But they go into this room. It's the first time they meet him, and they read books to him in words that they can't understand. And they read about cows jumping over moons and saying goodnight to the moon and all kinds of books like that. And, the kids didn't understand what was happening, but they're trying to demonstrate love and hugging on them and kissing on them, and they leave. And they're there for several days, and every day they said they left exactly the way that they came in, totally silent. And the last day came, he knew the last day was going to be the worst day because they were going to have to leave these children there and go back to the United States while the legal paperwork was done. And so, so we spent time, we were reading books to them and praying with them, playing with them, and they're cry- you know, their mom and dad go out in the hallway, and she starts crying. She starts trembling out in the hallway. And then Maxim falls back in the crib and he does this guttural yell from his stomach. It's the first time he's made noise. He's yelling out because now he knows someone's listening. Someone cares. And Russell in his article said, it's almost like there was this primal instinct where he now knew he had a father. And he said it redefined for him the passage of Scripture in the New Testament where we're told that we can cry out to our father, Abba, Father. You see it in Romans, you see it in Galatians, the Apostle Paul talks about it, that because of what Jesus Christ has done, you're given the right to call your father, daddy, papa. That's what it means, Abba. He said for him, up until that point, it always seemed real sentimental, like the preacher talk of holding your child, and he says, daddy and Abba. But at that point, when he heard Maxim do that, he realized what that picture was really like. It's like when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he cries out, Abba, Father, if there's any other way crying for deliverance. Isn't that a picture of the gospel? Father. And he delivers us and he cleanses us and he transforms us at the point of justification at the cross that Jesus had to go to the cross. There was no other way for him. He had to go to the cross for us so that we could be adopted by our Father. What a picture of the gospel adoption is. So defend the cause of the fatherless. What does that mean? What does that mean for you and for me? Does it mean that we should all adopt? Maybe. There's certainly a great enough need. UNICEF says there's 210 million orphans in the world today. The need is there. If the need were the reason, for sure the answer would be yes. But we don't adopt because of the need. We adopt because of the gospel. And what the gospel's done in our lives 
and what a picture it is to someone. We get an opportunity to demonstrate the gospel in their life in such a tangible way. So is each one, are each one of us supposed to adopt? Maybe. I don't know. God's got to speak to your heart about that. But if you look in your worship program, there's some real tangible steps you can take to care for orphans. There's 10 of them specifically laid out with detail in each one of your worship programs. A little insert there. There's pictures of orphans. They're not just stats. It's not just 210 million people that are out there. They're real kids, real little kids. And there are real opportunities out there. You can pray for them. You can pay for them to be put into an orphanage where Christ-based care will be given, where they'll hear the gospel, where people will hold them. Some of these children aren't getting held. You can go to orphanages where you can get held. In fact, there's one ministry, one of our members, Chad Doyle, will be out at the table, the uh, orphan table that's out there today. It's called Hold the Children. For $150 a month, you can have them put into an orphanage where people will care for them. In fact, you can go on short-term mission trips and actually meet these children and hold them yourself. For $5 a day, you, you can pay for this. That's a way. Uh, there's a, a suggestion on that worship program thing that says maybe you, for some reason you can't adopt. And there's a circumstance or whatever it is, you wouldn't get accepted or whatever the details are. You can take a picture of an orphan, tape it on the dashboard of your car, pray for them every day. And when you see someone that might be able to do it, you can advocate for them, defend the cause, speak on behalf of. Do to them what you'd want done if you were in their situation. It's a picture of the gospel. So God's for justice. In fact, justice is a pleasing worship to him. But justice is not just for us. The question is, are we? for justice. And if we haven't been living justly, the real application today is repentance. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you in your grace, and it's only because of your grace that we can approach your throne. With boldness, you say that we can approach your throne. We repent of our sin. We repent of not giving a voice to those who don't have a voice. We repent of pornography. We repent of workaholism. We repent of all the stuff that comes into our lives. We repent of gluttony. We repent of laziness. We repent of uh, just trying to take things in our own control. We repent of all of the sin, and you can even repent of your own specific sin. Father, we come before you and we ask for your cleansing. We know you are faithful and just, and you will forgive us. You will cleanse us. We thank you that you will have your face shine upon us because of your son, Jesus Christ, and the gospel. I pray if there are any that don't know your son, Jesus, that today would be the day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.